Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Other Football Podcast, where we keep our ear to the ground on American soccer through analysis and thoughtful conversation. This episode, we're going to be talking to a good friend of mine, Matt Bates, trying to get an older perspective on American soccer and the progression of it. We're also going to be talking about the past, present, and future of American soccer, and also analyzing the performance of the U.S. men's national team in the 2022 World Cup, where they fell out of the round of 16 to the Netherlands. First on the agenda, we're going to be talking about, you know, the past, present, and future of American soccer. And obviously, with that, we're going to have to start with the past. And when you look at kind of where that separation happened between European and American soccer, um, and how, you know, there's just, we have this cultural divide now, where we are, we've labeled another sport football, and we just don't see any reason to go back. So now we're at this point, and let's kind of talk about how we got there. So when talking about like the start of the domestic leagues in America, you talk about NASL, the National American Soccer League. And they were attracting stars like Pele, big names, um, and just starting up teams in bigger cities. For example, the New York Cosmos, was the biggest, and just trying to really create a soccer culture in the United States in the 30s and 40s. As time goes on, and there's rising tensions just with um, the differences between communism and capitalism, there is starts to become a label on soccer as this communist sport, mostly because of the communist Russians at the time in the 80s during the Cold War. So having the sport labeled a communist sport really stunted a lot of the growth that was able to happen at the time. So it, you go from just starting out your domestic leagues to it becoming dead, and you're basically starting from square one again, which doesn't really happen till the mid-90s. So we lose that progress from the 30s and 40s, and we're basically starting at ground zero in 1993 with the founding of the MLS. So the MLS comes out with the driving factor being the 1994 World Cup that is going to be hosted by the United States. So they begin to think that with this World Cup, they can start driving interest, and not only was it for people who wanted to, ve- to develop the sport, I would also say it was more so for the money that these owners thought that they you know, could get from this fandom and that possibly if soccer blew up after this 1994 World Cup, that the MLS could become one of the top leagues in America, and getting in early on a sporting league is a very big deal in America and can lead to generational wealth. So that's kind of why it was founded in 1993 and also just incredibly important to have a first division domestic league that's within your own country when, it, when we talk about developing players and things of that nature. And so MLS becomes the dominant league in America mostly because it's the only league in America um, and just all the money is flowing through there, flowing through that league specifically. And it starts to get a label as a retirement league. Um, And this label kind of follows it around, even still to this day, just because of MLS owners more so seeing just a big name later on in their career. Example, David Beckham, um, who, who joined LA Galaxy. They see a player later on in their career that is willing to take a little bit of a pay cut because they've already made most of their money and just come to America and have a good time. And it's more so about having a good time than the competition. And so that kind of really took out some of the competitive edge of MLS and created a culture of just retirement league. And this is only bad for MLS academies. MLS academies were stagnant in the 2000s and more so cared about making profit off their academies rather than producing players for their first team. They just saw it as a way to generate money 
through parents and uh, youth players. So just a, a, not a very good system relying on old players who can only stay in the MLS two to three years and then having them retire and not even giving you that much effort in the time that they were in the MLS. Um, so you you see that the academy's not producing any talent leads to no Americans coming out of these academies. And that really hampers the Americans' development in in those years, in the 2000s. Um, even though you could say that we've, we had our best team um, up until now, we, we had our best team back in those 2000s days with the Landon Donovans, the Tim Howards, um, just trying to, you know, do the best they can with the resources they had when you have European teams who have been youth training together since they were 12 or 14. It's just a much less organized system in America, and it's hard to compete. The 2010 World Cup comes around, and it's a massive point of success for the United States men's national team who make it out of the group stage first in their group and being above England in the group as well. So they come into the round of 16, and that's where they lose. So making it to the round of 16 in a World Cup is its own achievement and still something to look back on and be proud of, especially with that group of players we had and the amount of resources we were using at the time compared to the other nations. So this 2010 World Cup performance causes a little more excitement in America about soccer and a little more fandom around MLS as it's still a small league, but it's starting to get a little bit more popular, especially some new fans coming in with the 2010 World Cup and the United States' good performance. So MLS starts to realize that it needs to encourage youth development to make American players better. And they kind of see this by seeing the national team and thinking that there's more of a role that MLS should be playing with the national team. It, it should be more direct and not just acting like, oh, it's just something out there that our players also do, uh, that they, all, they just go to international duty. No, it, it needs to be a more clear connection if we're going to get better as a nation. So that's what they start to do and start building through the youth and start investing in their youth academies and facilities and also making it easier for more talented players to get into their academies just financially and also just accessibility-wise. There's also encouragement from the league to do this by roster rules. Um, having roster rules of a certain amount of players need to be under 21 on, on your roster. So just trying to encourage managers in the MLS to give these younger players a chance and give them more playing time because that's how we need to progress as a nation in soccer, by giving these young players playing time in our domestic leagues at young ages. And then once they're good enough, they need to make them move over to Europe where the top-level players are. And... They determine, MLS the teams determine that building through the youth academy is incredibly valuable to them um, due to factors like, um, like lower contracts. You would have lower contracts as opposed to other players with youth academy players, and you would also be able to turn them for a profit later on instead of paying for an older player who's 34 and then him coming in, and he's only going to lose value. No one else is going to want an older guy who's 34 getting paid a good amount of money um, just because that's just going to be a lot to deal with contract-wise. So MLS teams start realizing that youth players are the way to go, and the investment first really comes from FC Dallas and Philadelphia Union, I would say, um, having just really diving head first into the talent. And also when you look at Philadelphia and you look at Dallas 
um, two big cities, and especially with the Texas region, there's a lot of talent within the state of Texas that FC Dallas is able to reach out to. So FC Dallas and Philadelphia Union, everyone starts seeing the success of producing these players and then selling them onto European teams for for three million, four million, and making that money and owners seeing, wow, we, I can make a profit off this thing instead of just spending money like an American franchise. Oh, I can actually invest in it directly and then sell on these players for something more. We see, yeah, a, a lot of MLS players start coming up and you start seeing 18-year-olds starting in the league. You start seeing 19-year-olds starting in the league. And these would be guys like Brendan Aronson, who's on the World Cup team now, um, Weston McKinney, Chris Richards, just these younger core of guys who are start who were starting to get young who were starting to get playing time at a young age in the MLS. And you also have another division of American players who see the best path to development being going to Europe at a young age. Um, for example, Christian Pulisic went to Germany at 15 or 16. Weston McKinney was born in Germany, but went back there to develop with, um, went back there to develop with Schalke. And just getting these experiences, another one I can think of is Giovanni Reina, who is with Borussia Dortmund right now in Germany. He started like Christian Pulisic in, in the same way, starting at a young age. And you just see that the level of talent from these guys who go overseas and are challenging themselves, they're just growing at, at such a faster rate compared to the guys in MLS because of all the resources and where the leagues were at at the time. So these players just really start excelling at, at such a high level and MLS teams start seeing that, oh, I can, when I'm able to sell these players onto bigger European clubs, I'm only helping the sport and helping American soccer. So you see big money moves come in for people like um, Weston McKinney, Brendan Aronson, Matt Turner, guys like this going to big European clubs for an excess of $20 million and just the, the price is rising and rising and, and more European teams starting to invest in America because they see these players doing so well. MLS had grown into a strong position around 2017 at this point, and these big money moves are leading them to kind of change their identity from a retirement league to a development league. And, and what they were able to do by developing talent was not only to develop American talent, they were also scouting South America and Central America and taking talent from a cheaper price and bringing it to the MLS, developing that talent, um, i.e. someone from Argentina, someone from Brazil, someone from Colombia, taking someone like that, developing them, and then able to sell them to a bigger club because South America does not have those resources and infrastructure to produce high-level players at, at a consistent level in terms of developing not not a raw talent perspective. The raw the raw talent is absolutely there in South America. So you take this development league now and where it's built through youth academies, buying players who are younger now rather than players who are closer to the end of retirement. And it's just really boosting the league and just improving popularity. The MLS has grown a, a lot in popularity in America and I think people are really starting to embrace their local teams um, that they've either recently discovered or they've known about for a while and are just starting to get convinced to start supporting. So they're buying low and selling high, and they know that the South American clubs are not going to need much money to convince them to sell off their players um, because just less money means more to them, to these smaller South American clubs, with what they can do with that amount of money. And so then, while things are going good on the domestic side, the men's national team fails to qualify for the 2018 World Cup in Russia, which is seen as 
its biggest its biggest failure of all time and just hitting its lowest low. So they fire their coach and then they hire Greg Burhalter, who's a former MLS coach, coached with the Columbus crew, and he starts kind of feeding the prospects into the team. Uh, firstly, we only kind of really saw what Christian Pulisic, but now we're starting to see Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, starting to see some of the other guys coming to the fold. And it's not only about Christian now. Christian Pulisic is not only not the only guy in the spotlight. So with these young prospects, you want to do great because the talent is there, but at the same time, it, it can be a nervy time and you got guys going into these um, these atmospheres in El Salvador and Honduras, very, very tough atmospheres that if you're not brave enough, they'll take you down. So you go with these guys and they start to dominate the region. They dominate the North American region, CONCACAF, by winning the Gold Cup and then the Nations League, which was the first ever in the region over Mexico. So we, we just begin, it's really the start of regional dominance for the United States men's national team. And now it's really about looking and just continuing that dominance and qualifying for World Cups and doing better and better in World Cups and eventually looking to win the World Cup when, whenever that can be. So that said, we're going to get into our interview now with a great friend of mine, Matt Bates. He's going to give us his perspective as a little bit of an older fan. Um, I, I was just able to try to walk through the past, but I, I think Matt does a really great job at explaining the culture of American soccer at the time and just how it's progressed and all these years of development. So now we're going to begin into our interview portion of the show, and I wanted to bring on someone who is a longtime friend of mine. Uh, I've been able to talk about the topic of American soccer with for a while. We even had our own podcast back in the day. I just thought it would be he'd be a really good person to have on the podcast. So this is Matt Bates. If you want to say hello and just talk about a little bit about your background uh, with the sport. Yeah, sure. So. Uh, I, I grew up in a small community outside of Indianapolis, and I actually can remember uh, having a neighbor across the street that was, uh, he was probably five to six years older than I was, but had gotten interested in soccer. So when he'd come over and we were just playing in my yard growing up, he always have a, a soccer ball with him. I kind of grew to enjoy uh, the sport, and I think at the time how different it was from what I'd experienced with, you know, baseball, basketball, kind of the, what I, I would think of as kind of the traditional American sports, especially like my dad's generation. So kind of intrigued by the sport, uh, started playing and, you know, then from there, just, I kind of tried different sports, played baseball, played basketball growing up. And I can remember a point, uh, probably late middle school, early high school, where I <laughs> talked to my dad and said, you know, I, I really don't enjoy these other sports. I really just want to focus on soccer. So yep. at, at that point it was, uh, I, I just completely fell in love with the sport, spectating, playing, and, uh, went on to play at the high school and collegiate levels, small division three school. Awesome. And, you know, when you were kind of first getting into the sport, what would you say that the American soccer landscape kind of looked like? in terms of like the media coverage or, or how people would talk about the national team and things like that? Yeah, I would say um, I don't remember much about the media coverage as a kid or really even hearing all too much about the sport. I think there was definitely in pockets of the United States probably pretty good in evolving uh, soccer cultures. Indianapolis has a pretty good soccer culture, um, but – yeah, I don't I don't really remember watching like say, you know, Premier League games on network television uh -huh, uh, yeah. early mornings on weekends or anything like that and you know, there would have been a couple World Cups when I was younger. I don't really remember uh, much coverage around those. So for me, I don't know that it was 
it was pretty non-existent from what I remember. Yeah, and just like a, a general, you know, favoring the other American sports and in you know those kind of media coverage over a, a European sport. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I and I think too, you know, I think of other sports today that I may equate soccer to back to when I was kind of get into, you know. Lacrosse is one that we haven't heard of a whole lot, um, but I really think it's kind of starting to expand. Rugby's kind of in the same boat, I think. Um, cricket's another one. You know, those aren't those are sports you never heard of uh, back when I started playing soccer. And I kind of feel like soccer at that point in time was maybe in a in a similar state as what those sports are today. Yeah, and kind of getting into that, was soccer encouraged to be played or watched? Uh, just like among friends, among parents, just, was the sport kind of just ever really pushed to you or, or your generation in general? I think part of the reason I probably started playing was soccer's kind of seen, I think, especially for for little kids, as kind of that safe <laughs> fall sport, if you will. You know, Yeah, a starter uh, sport. Football, football that young. I mean, now there's a lot of flag football leagues and things. Um there really wasn't that at that age. So soccer was kind of that way, I think, as a fall sport to get kids involved in something and, you know, not worrying about a significant amount of, I guess, cost and getting a kid to play. I mm-hmm. mean, you had your club fees and then you needed shoes and shin guards. That was it. Yeah. And, you know, what was kind of your experience playing organized soccer at that young age? Like just kind of talking about like maybe a lack of investment or just soccer not seen as being as important as the other sports. So maybe a little bit less um, organization or investment. Did you ever encounter that? Um, not necessarily, but I, I guess maybe indirectly in that I actually played when I was a little kid again at a, in a neighboring town that was a little bit bigger. Uh, and part of that was just to get more of a population of kids playing. I don't think that the town I lived in probably could have supported a league uh, with so many kids and and so many teams. There just wasn't enough interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when I, I ended up moving later on in life to a different community and they, I played club there, but even then um, the leagues were still maybe a little sparse. And I know there were kids that I went to the same school with that would, play at neighboring clubs again just to to get a, a better pool of players that they were playing with and in, in most of the rec leagues yeah would you say that you've ever had soccer actively being pushed lower than other american sports like i i know that there can be you know some people who make jokes about soccer as like not being as american as the other sports just like with the flopping culture and things like that like how have you encountered that like negative stigmatisms about soccer in American culture, it, I think every so often, I there's nothing that's ever, I mean, harmful in a, in a malicious way. I think it's a lot of joking. Um, you do have kind of the the football, basketball, baseball purists. Um, yep. You know, I I I like to joke with some of the baseball fans because they talk about how it's such slow pace and low scoring, and I like to jab back and I think they're always receptive to you know baseball is kind of known for being somewhat slow paced and yeah. can be low scoring at times so I don't know that I've ever um experienced it heavily I mean you know soccer wasn't a school sponsored sport until I hit high school so uh we were always playing in clubs and then you, you kind of ran into situations where you know school sponsored sports in their minds took precedent over any other thing that you were doing outside of school. So, you know, there, there was maybe seasons where you might participate in uh, track, let's say at a middle school level, and then you wanted to play club soccer. Well, the track coach didn't care that you were playing club soccer. Uh, it was all about track. So yeah, you had to kind of find ways to, to play the game um, and still participate in some of the other sports. Yeah, just kind of those barriers to entry for the sport, would you say, making it a little bit harder? Yeah, and I mean, the interest at that level just wasn't there. So I don't necessarily blame anybody. You you wouldn't want to invest, you know, in the resources, the goals, you know, the field, 
location and all that stuff if you didn't have enough enough interest uh, yeah yeah enough interest and enough people to support the team and again football is the dominant fall sport at least in indiana uh men's soccer is a, a fall sport so i mean that's where all your athletes went to play was yeah. was football so when was the first time you were exposed to european soccer and kind of that in- intensity around the sport that's kind of unparalleled in american sports where, where that level of passion and that level of just insane fandom that we see in European soccer. Like, when were you first exposed to that? Um, it was probably late in middle school, I, I would imagine. I distinctly remember uh, I had a, a good friend that I played with uh, all throughout high school. And I can remember going to over to his house my freshman year uh, to watch Champions League games. Uh, he was a big Manchester United fan, so... I'd go hang out with him because his he had all the the cool sports packages. And again, it wasn't necessarily on network television at the time. Yeah, <laughs> his parents just happened to have subscriptions to, you know, some of the add-ons on whatever satellite package they had. So we'd go over to his house and you know watch Champions League matches. So I would say that's probably um, where the the European exposure uh, the first time I was exposed to that. And then from there, you know, there was a, a World Cup not long after. So that kind of just elevated it more and more. I guess, yeah. you know, one of the things that I had some exposure to, but I don't know that I fully connected the dots is I played miscellaneous versions of FIFA growing up, even before, you know, I hanging out at my buddy's house watching games. So I knew more about the national teams at that level, um, having played the game. Uh, in a, literally a video game, but I never probably watched it on TV until I was in high school. Yeah, just having, you know, all those different television packages that someone needs just to watch, you know, some <laughs> simple games. Yeah. It, it just shows really the barriers that we have to deal with as Americans to watch the sport. And kind of moving on to my next question, you know, what was the television coverage of the men's national team games like in the 90s and the 2000s? And how much attention would you say they were receiving? Um, I don't know for sure in the 90s. Uh, I I can't ever remember watching a U.S. Men's National Team game in the 90s. But that could have just been me. I think in the 2000s, you know, started to get some more uh, exposure to it. But, you know, it's really really tough for me. And, And part of that was I think you had to make a conscious effort to watch the sport. And so... You know, I was still in a household where it was is very dominated by football, basketball. We didn't yeah. watch a lot of baseball, but it, when it came to watching sports, I mean, you know, getting dad to turn the TV on to watch a soccer match, exactly. <laughs> having that, that's, that's, having that's, never played it growing up and not have not having a ton of understanding of the sport. I mean, it just wasn't ever on his radar, and I was not uh, the controller of. what yeah what we watched on tv so no and like that's that kind of natural stigmatism i would say is just like that unfamiliarity that a lot of americans have with the game they just push the game away because of that unfamiliarity instead of kind of you know wanting to learn and stuff how much do you think that the boost in television coverage and media coverage that we've been seeing for soccer in america how much do you think that's helping the popularity of the game i think i think it's massive anytime you can give kids really kind of role models athletes to look up to i think you know that's that can pave the way for a whole new generation of talent and and interest in the united states and so you know the fact that games you know you'll find premier league games now on nbc you know some of the core channels that are mm-hmm. on the yeah, tv i mean it's easy games. to tune in and watch and watch a game and the other thing too is is because it's it's played overseas, I mean, the timing of it, you're not, there are some games that conflict with, you know, college football and and NFL, but for the most part, those games air in the morning. And so those kids can wake up in the morning, eat breakfast and, and watch a soccer match. And they don't, they don't worry about it conflicting with other sports that may be going on in the United States. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good way to start your morning kind of in a lively way and just have a great sporting event like that, you know, right when we wake up. 
Yeah, I kind of enjoy being able to watch a game and then have the rest of my day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's something that's really unique about soccer in America when we're watching these European games in the morning. So kind of moving back to um, just American development and like just playing at a young age, what are your, kind of your opinions on the pay-to-play system in American travel soccer teams and the academies? And do you think it works? makes us a worse soccer nation? because we're kind of holding back some talent that can't afford to to pay f- for these nice academies? Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. Um, you know, one of the things, though, that I think we kind of, we don't point out about what's going on, I think, with the sport is, you know, we we have some of the best basketball players in the world by far. And part of that, I think, is because if you go to any park, for the most part, in the United States, there's a basketball court there. Mm-hmm. And so there's always the ability for someone just at a, at a basketball court to play a pickup game. And I mean, people could say, well, yeah, you drop a couple cones or you have a couple markers and those are goals, but it's not really quite the same. And so even, even accessibility for a little kid to go to the park and play, um, that's not really part of our existing infrastructure. Uh, I had the I had the privilege to go spend ten days in Spain, uh, a few in Madrid, and and a few days in Barcelona. And when I was in Madrid, I mean, you would go around. There's a park in the center of the community that we were in, and that park had a futsal court. And so kids would just show up and play futsal, mm-hmm. and that's just not something we have. And so I think that's that's a big part of it, um, but. Yeah, I, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that the financial barrier uh, for somebody to be able to kind of excel um, within the United States system, to me, is a pretty big issue. And I mean, with with my family, my spending money to hope that I maybe end up being decent <laughs> enough to play at a higher level, that yeah. was not a priority for my family. And I never, I never faulted them for that. I was never that good anyway, but my family cared more about just, you know, core, core characteristics and core values and making, trying to raise me as a decent person. And, you know, it was never, it was never on my family's radar to try to spend a bunch of money at a, at a particular club, uh, just so I may get the opportunity to end up in an academy or, you know a shot at playing overseas, which again, I would have never even come close to, to doing that. Yeah. But it still would have been nice to have those chances, you know, with, without having to worry about taking that financial risk, you know? Yeah. And you know, something that's, I think unique to our system is the whole NCAA platform um, that kind of adds a weird, a weird quirk in a way compared to how the European academies are set up. Um, kind of the whole the whole idea of that can kind of conflict with some of the academies we have locally and there's different even different rules between the two sets it's to me i i think it kind of creates this weird dynamic within the united states system yeah definitely a confusing amount of different pipelines of how to get to become a, a professional and it absolutely can, yeah it can get very tangled um so I, I kind of moving into those different pipelines to be a pro, I wanted to talk a little bit about MLS, the domestic American league that we have here in the United States, Major League Soccer. And I wanted to know, like, what, what was your introduction into MLS and how has it affected your soccer fandom, if it has in any way? Uh, I think the first MLS game that I remember watching even was probably in person um, when I was playing as a kid, our team got like a, a team tickets to watch the Columbus crew. So we went and drove to Columbus one weekend and, and watched a game. We were ball kids uh, that game. It was it was interesting. I don't remember a ton about that experience, but I don't I've never felt like I've had as much passion watching that as I would uh, some of the European teams. And it, it's not to discount. MLS itself but when you know I would I would ask like people that are in the same generation as me everybody looked up to Michael Jordan 
as a as a basketball player. Well, if you're a kid living in Canada that loves basketball, you're probably not going to focus on any Canadian leagues of any type, yeah. mm-hmm. you know. And I now that I'm saying that, I know there's there's Toronto Raptors, but if you're in another country, you're always going to probably watch the league where the where the best player is or the one that's setting the model. So for me, you know, in high school at the time, Cristiano Ronaldo was just, his career was just beginning to take off. Lionel Messi was really starting to take off. So, you know, we were more inclined to watch the European games because that's where the best players were playing. It wasn't necessarily to dog on an MLS team. Mm -hmm. And I think even since then, I've gained more appreciation uh, for MLS. And and the league Uh, has made strides as well. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I mean, they're pulling in quality talent and some, some stars that have kind of made their rounds in Europe and have come and decided to kind of coast the rest of their retirement. Coast is probably a bad word, but finish their careers Mm -hmm. in in MLS. So I think they've, the league's made progress. I do think the, the promotion relegation system and, and kind of the rest of the world for that matter makes leagues elsewhere kind of more interesting and more at stake than what the MLS has. So there's also that factor at the overall league level that I think um, makes MLS and the European leagues a lot different from one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And can you think of any benefits that MLS has given the American soccer community? That I mean, I would just say that, I don't know, just kind of getting, I think that the MLS has been able to reach Americans who were a little more skeptical of watching European soccer, you know, because it's right on their doorstep. So I, I'd say that's one of the benefits. But do you think there's any other benefits that the MLS has given to the community? Yeah, th- there's probably that factor. You know, I've, I've been exposed to the investment that uh, MLS teams make in their local communities towards uh, development of, of talent. And I think that's that's awesome. You know, we're seeing we're seeing pretty cool strides from teams, uh, you know, like Philadelphia right now. Um with Brendan Aronson and his younger brother. I mean, so there's, there's talent being developed, I think locally. Now I still think we're in kind of a mode where once you hit a certain point and you're a very talented player, I think for the most part, a lot of those players see their next step being out of MLS to over somewhere in Europe. Yeah. So it's going to be, I think the barrier to retain talent in the MLS is still there because that's the next progression in your career. If you're good within the MLS and then you get interest from European teams as well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go play in the premier league or the Bundesliga or, or La Liga, um, Serie A. So I think that's going to be continue to be somewhat of a challenge to the league as, as we move forward. Yeah. And, and kind of, I want to also move on and talk about the other league in America that, you know, gets a lot of coverage, uh, USL, and I know you're very you're very familiar with USL, and I kind of just wanted to get your opinions on USL and what what factor that's really played into the growth of American soccer. Yeah, so um, USL has been intriguing to me. I for a time lived uh, just outside of Louisville, Kentucky, and um, kind of got to start following uh, Louisville City FC. And for those that don't know, USL is kind of the it's it's the second tier within. American soccer again we don't have that promotion relegation system but I think it's been good because it's been another way to develop talent and I think it's also helped kind of spread professional soccer across the United States Um, you know a franchise tag is not cheap in the MLS and you'll see situations where teams start out in USL and then they maybe transition whether it's under the same same team name or a different team over uh, to MLS once they kind of build up that fan base and the momentum to make make their way into MLS. Uh, one of the intriguing things to me is I think, from my standpoint, USL has different tiers. And I think over time, we may see them shift to kind of more of a promotion relegation system. And you know, I, I think you're seeing a lot of quality stadiums and facilities built for USL clubs. So I think it's been good because it 
it kind of puts pressure on the MLS <laughs> yeah. to perform mm-hmm. um, because the really the viewership for what USL is, is, is really, really strong. And the quality of the play and, you know, even, even now we're seeing, you know, Joe Cole was then played in the USL. Didier Drogba retired after playing a stint in the USL. Landon Donovan's a coach in the NFL, in the USL. So, I mean, there's a lot of, I think, cool things happening with that league, and I think people are starting to take notice. Yeah, definitely. And I think the the USL is, like you said, pushing the MLS in a good way. You know, we're we're coming up with a. a very talented generation, the most talented generation we've ever had of American soccer players with players like Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, Brendan Aronson, these kind of guys playing at, you know, Champions League level clubs at the top pinnacle of European football. Um, I was kind of wondering, you know, where do you think that this generation, you know, can propel the sport in America? Yeah, I you know, I think to me, it's really exciting to see this uh, World Cup cycle because I think we're fielding one of the youngest teams we've ever fielded, if I'm not mistaken. And you can yes, correct me definitely. if I'm, I'm wrong on that. We're, we're definitely um, going to be the youngest team at the World Cup this year. Yeah. And, and so the thing is, is I think that kind of paves the way to have some mainstays as far as American talent, have a good court uh, group of talented players and you know i think they're getting more exposure at the european level and so brendan aronson for instance if you're a kid watching leeds play uh or or tyler adams for that matter if you're watching leeds play and you see these american stars playing overseas at pretty young ages then you're like wow that's that's really cool like i can relate they're more relatable yeah um and then in, in their mind, it's, well, I can do that. And so I think it, it really sets sets the stage for peop- people believing that and kids believing and having role models that they can relate to. And I think we'll start to see a momentum of talent built behind that uh, as as kids have noticed that. And, and that doesn't take anything away from, you know, former Americans that have played at the European level in the past. Um you know, the Landon Donovans, the Tim Howards, the Clint Dempseys. Yes. I mean, I, I, re- I remember watching them play in, in Europe. But I just think that we're seeing more and more kind of make their way and shine uh, in those leagues. And I think that draws attention from talent and kids here locally in the States that look up to them and, and lets them know that it's possible for them to achieve that level of play. Yeah. I, I definitely agree. And and kind of relating to that, you know, when we, as Americans, we dominate many of the major sports um, and we also love the Olympics and love the Olympic sports that we're good at. I was kind of wondering, do, do us as Americans, do you think we need to feel like we're good at a sport in order to enjoy it? And And do you have that concern with soccer that we'll never truly embrace it until we're good at it? Yeah, I think, I think that that's definitely... That's always been valid in my mind. When you have the best league sitting in your backyard, it's just kind of, or best leagues for that matter, sitting in your backyard, it's easy to kind of get on board with the athletes and the sport. I do think inherently it's like, well, we can't really claim to be the best at this. So by default, we're just kind of like, well, I'll go watch something I know we're really good at. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And to me, I think, I think it's cool that if I've always maybe been a little bit of a contrarian from that standpoint in that for me, it's cool just to get some exposure from the West, the rest of the world, you know, and know that we're not necessarily the best at everything. I think even my kind of my worldview changed significantly having followed soccer so closely versus some of the other sports and that's not to take away anything from them you know those sports exist all throughout the world but when you're watching teams play overseas and you're seeing all these different countries and all these different names and all these different languages spoken and players that speak three or four different languages because they play with three or four five different nationalities on their team I mean to me that was that was cool and so I do think 
more broadly, it kind of agitates people that, you know, they're just not interested because we're not the best at it. For me, I was kind of like, I'm more interested because we're not the best. Yep, at it. exactly. Yep. So we're this is going to kind of go and wrap it up with my last question here. North America will be hosting in the uh, World Cup in 2026. And I kind of just wanted to get your opinions on, you know, what effects that that could have for the sport, you know, just having a massive event like the World Cup right in our backyard. Yeah, I think we'll we'll definitely see, I think, a push of athletes, quality, talented athletes um, that will make their way into, into playing the sport, I think, because of that exposure. You know, we've hosted before. Um, I think we're at a different level of momentum when it comes to, to this go around. And there's, again, been more exposure of soccer just overall between those times. It's really tough if if the exposure to the population within the United States is very limited outside of just one event. So yeah, you have that, you have that one event and you have this push for uh, a sport in that window of two months, really. Well, that's, it's tough to get much momentum if you don't have that recurring exposure between those um, major events. So I really think the combination of what we've seen with the ability to watch some of the European leagues and and watch some of our American stars in those leagues will help sustain that momentum uh, post the World Cup that we host. Mm -hmm. So so I'm really excited uh, for it. I wish they would have picked some different cities if I'm being selfish, but I think overall, regardless, it's going to prove to be very beneficial to the sport uh, within the United States. Yeah, just I definitely agree. I think that it's going to present an opportunity that we've never really seen in America, you know, for the game to grow. I just want to thank you for your time, Matt. Uh, it's been a really great conversation talking about American soccer with you, and I'm sure we'll have much more conversations in the, in the future about this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I want to thank Matt Bates again for that great interview that I had with him. So at the time of this recording, it is just after the United States men's national team were eliminated in the round of 16 to the Netherlands. In this part of the podcast, we're just going to be looking into this recent 2022 World Cup performance, analyzing it, taking any nuggets we can get out of it, and looking to the future. So we had our first game against Wales, a 1-1 draw, a little bit frustrating, um, especially conceding a late equalizer like that to Gareth Bale. And that's a game you say that we could maybe win. And then you move on and you go to your second game against England, the biggest game in the group, and you end up with a nil-nil draw, which is a great result. You would take a draw against a team like England and their skill and ability when compared to us. And even in that game, you could make the argument that we were the better team, um, creating more shots, creating more opportunities. So just seeing that the American game progressing like that and competing on an England level just kind of talks about, you know, the, the evolution and play style in American play and just a little bit of a progression there that we wouldn't have seen in previous teams, i.e. with like a 2010 World Cup team. I don't think that, I think they probably get beat 3-0 by England there. Um, So just an evolution in tactics also shows another part where American soccer culture has grown is that tactical evolution. And then we get into our final game where it's a must win against Iran. And we end up winning it 1-0, Christian Pulisic getting the goal, and it, we knew it was going to be a tough game. We knew that Iran were going to sit back. They were just looking for a draw. All we had to do, we just had to win, and we got the goal and made it through to the round of 16. Obviously, get drawn against the Netherlands, which is another um, footballing nation powerhouse. So that's a, another tough game that we had to look forward to, and then it gets up to it, 
and there were some expectations of maybe there can be an upset here from the United States, but we end up losing the game 3-1, and just you could see that there were some mistakes that we made, and even though we crashed out in the round of 16, it's still an accomplishment to make it out of that group stage, and we were looking to make it into the round of 16, you know, and especially getting that draw against England gives us something to get out of this World Cup with and say, you know what, we are making some progress. And when we're talking about that progress, we're looking towards the 2026 World Cup, which is going to be hosted by the United States, Mexico, and Canada. And this is the really big opportunity for the United States. Um, Some people are going to be expecting them to contend for the World Cup that year, especially from what we've seen, the United States being the the youngest team in this World Cup. And making it to the round of 16 is very promising, I would say. And so once these players get more to their prime, like Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, Christian Pulisic, Brendan Aronson, Timothy Weah, once these guys get more into their prime, we can we can look to start contending at a higher level. And it's also going to need to take regional dominance to be continued. We're, we're going to need to keep winning Gold Cup. We're going to need to keep winning Nations League if we want to really prove ourselves as one of the footballing powerhouses in the world so that's where it's really going to take the next step is that 2026 world cup we don't even know who the manager could be we don't even know who the starting 11 is going to be there there could be someone in that starting 11 that we have not even heard of who is just super young right now but that's just what that's really a testament to american development is that we can keep expecting great players to come out like christian pulisic like Giovanni Reina and all these other guys that we have on the team. So it was really fun talking about American soccer, and I'm looking forward to all the leaps and bounds that the United States can make in soccer.